The following podcast contains swearing, satire, and viewpoints some viewers may find surprising. So basically, all of the good stuff. I like Just Eat. Previously on Smith and Wall Talk About Satire. It's just like, if you're going to take money from the mail, you're not, you're not a satirist. For today's snowflakes, it really, really is all about them. Hence all this nonsense about safe spaces or university campuses. No platforming. Refusing to listen to anyone they don't agree with. Refusal to work in jobs they think beneath them. And all the rest that is marking so many as the most self-obsessed generation in centuries. And of course, that's a sweeping statement. I have nephews, godchildren. I know the children of friends who are delightful, charming and nothing like this. But a very vocal number are... They are the ones creating alternative realities, demanding a place where no one's ever allowed to be upset by anyone, and then getting upset themselves beyond measure at the slightest sign of dissent. My generation had it pretty good too. I can't single out a snowflake and say my life was much more difficult than theirs. It was not. But my mother was a child during the Second World War. She had to take shelter when witnessing a dogfight over the River Medway, and she had to sit at her levels in a bomb shelter. What would she make of it all today? Surely to goodness it's time we told millennial snowflakes to get a grip. They're the most fortunate generation in history. If we don't, a harsh fate awaits them. Do they really want their lives literally to melt away? I would hate my life literally to melt away. I think that'd be awful, wouldn't it? I think, Adam, for your own sake, if not everyone else's, it's better if it turns out those are not your words, but the words of someone else. So whose words are they? My words. Look, even even apart from everything else, I don't think your mother is old enough to have been a child during the Second World War. And I don't think she ever had to take shelter witnessing a dogfight over the River Medway. And I'm very confident she didn't sit her own levels in a bomb shelter. So I'm going to ask you again, and for the love of satire, I think you need to answer honestly, whose words are they? Oh, those words. Uh, They're the words of Virginia Blackburn, columnist for The Express, writing on February 22nd, 2018. Well, I am gladder than I can say that we've cleared that up. By and large, I disagree with Virginia Blackburn of The Express, and I would go further and say The Express is a publication I would generally probably avoid. So, yeah, what's going on? Yeah, just to be real, I don't entirely agree with Virginia Blackburn, um, and I imagine a lot of our listeners wouldn't agree with that stuff either. So, should we just re-record the intro? No, no. I'll tell you what, right? I didn't agree, but it didn't hurt. I think we should let that introduction stand, and I think we should use it as a springboard into the podcast and take all the opportunities that it offers us for discussion, and particularly given the kinds of things we're going to be discussing with our guest in this episode. So welcome, listeners, to the second episode of the second season of Smith & War Talk About Satire, where we're inviting you along on our riotous, informative and sometimes controversial journey through the history, form, function and future of satire. I'm Dr Adam Jane Smith, a lecturer in 18th century studies at York St John University. And I'm Jay War, a lecturer in 19th century literature, also at York St John University. And together, we are satire. We are. We're all of the satire. Did somebody say just eat? Just eat? Yeah. No, they did not. Oh. And I think it's important to note that we do not actually have any sponsors at this time. However, we are open to offers, aren't we? Yeah, well, I don't know. Are we open to offers? Because I do like this thing of podcasts being sponsored very specifically by companies that deliver you food as in Dear Joan and Jerrica and My Dad Wrote a Porno. And, you know, I'm quite enjoying playing around with that. But do you think do you think we would take sponsorship if we got it? Well... What, what would be an appropriate brand to sponsor kind of us? Something... Well, either something satirical mm. or something extremely straight, which we could yeah. infer that we were satirising by having them as sponsorship. Because if we make sponsorship itself into a satirical... Our response to sponsorship... Then, ironically, no one thing. would ever want to sponsor us, would they? 
No. Because we just satirised them. But if they did, yeah. we could say we were doing it in the in the name of satire. Yeah, yeah, we could. I'm sure they'd probably like that, wouldn't they? I don't know. What, what, would, what would be a good brand then to sponsor us? Just, to, just for your information out there, um, the world of commerce. Grammarly? Grammarly, that yeah, would be, be good, good wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Squarespace. Squarespace. Yeah. Um, Zip Recruiter. Sodexo Foods. <laughs> Sodexo <laughs> yeah. Foods. Yeah, there's, there are lots of people out there who might want to sponsor us. I mean, I, yeah. Shropshire Farm Foods. Yeah, yeah. yeah they should all hit us up in our socials if they would like to sponsor us because we'd be happy to um, to do you a good job on that. So what are we doing today? Today, we're going to be talking about satire with Andrew Doyle, the man behind Jonathan Pye and also behind Titania McGrath. Um, and Titania McGrath is a highly controversial Twitter account, but also a very popular Twitter account, also an Edinburgh Festival show. And Titania, in inverted commas, is also an occasional columnist for the Mail on Sunday. The true identity of Titania McGrath, Andrew Doyle, was outed earlier in 2019. McGrath is a persona who began life on Twitter as a kind of extremely woke young woman of pretty much the type that Virginia Blackburn is talking about. When Titania tweets about what's offensive, what's problematic, who's racist, who's homophobic, half of Twitter seems to find it hilarious, and the other half genuinely think that she's a real person and tend to tell her off quite vociferously for being a massive snowflake. And we'll be talking later to Andrew about who he considers to be his targets, what he thinks of as the goal of this account. Before we speak to Andrew, though, can we just have a little bit of a debrief about our last episode? Because I've been thinking about it a lot. Some of the biggest issues arising from our discussion with DM Reporter actually remind me of something else. Well, what does anything ever remind you of? I wonder what that might be. It reminds me of a time not so very dissimilar from our own. Righty ho. And yet a time that in many ways is frighteningly similar to our own. Wow. Play the jingle then. Adam's 18th Century Observation Corner. Do you remember, Joe, that we spoke at quite a lot of length last time about the relationship between the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday? I do remember that, yes. Well, first of all, that reminded me of my doctoral research, which was all about periodicals and newspapers published during the Hanoverian period that were sponsored by the Whig Ministry, but they didn't necessarily, and actually often avoided, saying that they were sponsored by the Whig Ministry. Well, let's just pause there so that you can explain what a Whig is and what a Hanoverian period is for anyone who might be unfamiliar with those terms. Okay, well, the Hanoverian period is the bit of English history where the last Stuart monarch, Queen Anne, passed away without an heir. So Parliament invited her fairly distant relative, George I, to be king, even though he was pretty much fully German. He was George of Hanover, as were his son, grandson and their great-grandson. They were George I through IV. Oh, the four Georges born to rule. Well, I think that's definitely cleared that up. Thanks, horrible histories. What the devil, though? What, oh what, is a Whig ministry? Well, there were two very broadly defined political parties at the time, the Whigs and the Tories. (laughs) Um, Although it's important to note that they aren't the same as political parties today. They were clusters of fairly like-minded politicians who shared a certain set of principles and a sort of political and literary sensibility. All right, and we know that there's no more Whigs, but there are still Tories, so is that the same as the Tories now? Not exactly. So the Tory party then was primarily interested in preserving the status quo and ensuring that culture was protected from the masses, keeping it pure from the taint of middle class aspiration and fighting quite viciously at times to ensure that culture was enjoyed not by the many, but by the few. Oh, so that's very different to now then, isn't it? 
I see what you did there. That was clever. Yeah. So um, what what were the Whigs and what became of them? What became of the Whigs? <laughs> what became of the Whigs? Well, the Whigs, spelt with an H, were pro-commerce, pro-trade, pro-parliament and anti-Catholic. And where the Tories were anxious about a rapidly emerging 24-hour consumer society and the rise of a new middle class, the Whigs bloody loved it. And so these periodicals that you wrote your PhD on, they were funded by either the Whigs or the Tahoris. That's absolutely right, right, yeah. So an organisation with a specific political outlook is paying for the publication of a whole range of newspapers and magazines, but not actively saying so. If and you, they're not saying so either. If you can yeah. imagine such a thing, I can. yes. But the reason I thought about this last time we spoke on the podcast is because although these papers were paid for by the same source, they were often quite different. So they shared a broadly defined political outlook. In fact, it was more of an aesthetic than an outlook, but they didn't even always agree with each other. In fact, two of the biggest Whig writers of the period, Joseph Addison and Richard Steele, who had formerly been very close collaborators, actually fell out big time towards the end of their respective careers because they both disagreed vehemently with the other's approach to writing Whig-sponsored periodicals. Addison thought Steele was too savage, Steele thought Addison was too soft. So you think that that is somehow directly analogous to the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday? Well, it's a bit, isn't it? And as someone who at certain conferences presents as a newspaper historian, I think it'd be remiss for me not to mention it. I would be all right with that. You'd be fine with me not we, mentioning yeah. it? Well, there's this but little thing called impact. And, yeah, right. uh, <laughs> the impact agenda yeah, right. do, compels do me to please say... please say more about the <laughs> The Daily Mail example, I think, is actually much more fascinating when you dig down into it, because not only is the Daily Mail and the Mail on Sunday, they're run by different editorial teams, they have different takes on hot topics, and actually they have no staff in common, despite showing a logo and a typeface. And a similar position on the shelf in your local newsagent. In addition to, to those differences, the Mail Online is actually different again. What's the 18th century equivalent of the Mail Online? Probably a periodical called The Scourge by Thomas Lewis. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So, yeah, so as we saw recently as well, the Daily Mail in England isn't even the same as the Daily Mail in Scotland because they took radically different views on the suggestion that we might have a general election a few months ago. So the difference is more like the difference between something like The One Show and Country File, except that those two BBC shows both have Matt Baker on them. Exactly. Is that a good analogy? That's a really good analogy. Good. Yeah, good I'm one. glad I thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> but this is not, despite appearances to the contrary, a podcast about partisan sponsorship of 18th century periodicals or the fascinating history of the Daily Mail it is actually about satire and this episode's 18th century corner I feel like we've been stuck in it in a while so I'm going to try my best to bring this back around to satire and the things that we're talking about today so I guess the issue is about how we bracket things and what we bracket them with as when we were talking about the, the Express and not listening to something because it's in the Express or indeed not even engaging with something like Virginia Blackburn because we don't agree with what she's saying or where she said it that once we've bracketed things in a certain place then there's a risk in refusing to listen to anything that that is part of them or that we mistakenly think is part of them and then we dismiss a whole raft of opinions and ideas and lead to claims like you know you you can't be a satirist if you if you write here or you can't be worth listening to if you write there it's like you're reading my mind i'm reading your script but there is, as I say, a whole world out there and we are still stuck in a corner. So let's move on from the 18th century, shall well, we? We can't quite leave 18th century corner yet because there's one other piece of research that's relevant that I'd like to talk about. Well, I think we should make it quick because people, no one's tuning in for this. OK, well, um, so I'm, I'm working an article right now about when people were and weren't given the label satirist during the early 18th century. And I'm arguing that the deployment of the label usually had more to do with political association or partisan intent than it did the question of whether or not the writing they produced actually was or wasn't satirical so hopefully it's obvious how this relates to what you were just yes. saying so the Tories quickly laid claim to satire as a practice and that's why they're best remembered as satirists so you've got Alexander Pope and Jonathan Swift but at the same time Whig figures
figures like Addison and Steele, who I mentioned earlier, were also producing work that meets the criteria of satire, but they're not remembered by history as being satirists. The difference is that they were reluctant to label their work in, in such a way, lest they be associated with the Tory aesthetics, which had already laid a claim to satire, and their Tory opponents were quick to clarify that you couldn't be a Whig and a satirist. Wow, so only the Tories were satirists and not the not the Whigs at all. That's what they were saying. They're, so wow. they were saying, if you're a Whig, you can't write satire, yeah. even if you were technically writing satire. That's the that's the key parallel. Yes, I suppose it's a bit like uh, in the present day, isn't it, with Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of, um, of the country, is it, at the time of recording, is a good example. Because choosing as and when we want to be associated with satire or actively dismissing legitimate criticism as being beyond satire, kind of pick and, picking and choosing mm. what is and isn't satire and when you're going to be associated with it and when you're not, isn't it? Absolutely. For your own ends. Absolutely. And that's that's exactly what happens when DM reporter says that you can't be a satirist if you've been paid to write for the Daily Mail. Now, I know it's a light-hearted throwaway comment, but this is exactly what's happening in the 18th century. You can't be a satirist, says Alexander Pope in the Dunciad, if you campaign for the Hanoverian succession, because that means you have a Whiggish disposition, and Whigs don't do satire because Tories do, and it's in Pope's interest to characterise everything that is Tory as not Whig, and vice versa. So the deployment of the label satirist isn't related at at all in either example to the actual content of the material discussed. So it's all defined by what it isn't really and for convenient means rather than out of any stable definition of what satire is, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. I just thought of that. Yeah, it, funnily enough as well, DM Reporter said that he doesn't think of himself as a satirist, didn't he? I mean, Rupert was doing himself a bit of a disservice. Wait, wait, sorry, there. sorry, sorry. Rupert? I'm just going to call him Rupert um, to preserve his anonymity because for some reason it seems like a funny and appropriate um, name for him, but his name is not Rupert. Okay, carry on. He said specifically that he didn't consider himself clever enough to be a satirist. So again, whether or not you are a satirist or the world perceives you as one, it is not determined by the extent to which you meet a set of neutral criteria, but it's bound up in a, a more nebulous sense of what a satirist should be and what sort of things they should be saying, how they should be saying them and where they should be saying them. So for Rupert, it seems like the satirist should be a sort of ingenious champion of a certain set of left-leaning values which he doesn't necessarily see himself as being. Absolutely. And with that, drawing it all home, thank you, Joe. We, I think we can now leave 18th century corner. The headline is <laughs> the headline is that back in the 18th century it was important to be mindful that papers that shared a political outlook and even at times the same bank of political sponsorship could actually still be quite different from each other and to say that they're all the same is like saying that someone is or isn't a satirist because of some factor external to the actual content of whatever material they're producing. Yes and it's also important to note that it's whig spelt with an h. That's my 18th century contribution. Adam's 18th Century Observation Corner. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'm glad to be out of that 18th century corner. I've got all cobwebs over me from that, that disgusting, dirty, old, boring corner. It's not without its own charm, though, is it? But I suppose it does have it have its own charm. But let's let's get back to, uh, to thinking about the now times. Let's go back quite seriously and talk about what Virginia Blackburn was actually discussing in that article that we opened with. Because I would imagine that when you were reading out those lines, that must have felt quite difficult because there's an anxiety that people might listen and think, oh my God, that's, that's what Adam Smith thinks, thinks everyone's a snowflake. Not yeah. listening to him anymore. Yeah, it, it was it was bizarre because I also hadn't really read it before we came in to record it, so I wasn't exactly oh, well sure. Well, then, Fred, missing that. Wants okay. it to be real. Yeah, and it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it's and it's the same with all of this kind of this. It's a genre of writing, mm. isn't it? And but there is like the germ of something in it. Yeah. So so things like safe spaces and no platforming totally see the rationale and the need for them. But I get anxious about the misuse of them, mm. or possibly the way in which you know, with potentially even with genuinely altruistic intention, you could mm. accidentally do something that 
that shut down discussion or debate or, or prevented people from... I mean, it's interesting because I'm having trouble saying this right now. But, you know, I get anxious about the fact that, you know, we in the in the best interests of everyone, we could create an environment where nobody is challenged, where nobody has to mm. do anything that, that, that stretches their ability yeah. and that we accidentally eliminate huge swathes of mm. questions for fear that we might accidentally encounter something that we're not comfortable with. Yeah, I think that's really difficult, isn't it? Because I, I know for sure that there are certain viewpoints or certain messages that I have no interest in hearing that I fundamentally disagree with. I also know there are certain viewpoints that I do think are actively dangerous mm-hmm. and that would concern me to hear propounded on campus. But those things aren't always the same, are they? No. There are things I don't want to listen to and things a much smaller subset of things that I don't think anyone should be saying. Yeah. But that it is a small group of things. Mm. Most things can be encountered, can be engaged with can be debated I, I think yeah and I mean I don't want to sound like this person when I say this but I you know I went I was an undergraduate not that very long ago these debates weren't as you know prolific mm. but what we did have when I was a student was a code of conduct and we still have a mm. code of conduct now and what that code of conduct did was it protected them from hate speech and it protected them from discrimination and bullying and obviously those things are the fundamental bedrock everyone is entitled to that I think it's even a human right but when when other things are lumped in with those it can mm. lead to a closing down of discussion and lots of things being labelled as fascism I think I should be clear on what I'm suggesting is that I think this art that this extract incidentally touches upon a few issues that are potentially interesting. I think it engages but... with a phenomenon that mm. not everybody would wish to acknowledge even is a phenomenon. But then at the same time, I think it is propagating an image which is which is not true, which is that the problem is the so called millennial snowflakes. Yes. Like that's that, yeah. that's not the issue. That's lumping lots of people together as one thing under a yeah. pejorative stereotype and it's detracting potentially from where, where the real issues are lying uh, to scapegoat a huge demographic of people. That is bad. Yes, I agree. That's wrong. Yeah. I think we've I that's, think we've nailed um, that then. Yeah. This interview with Andrew Joel that we're going to listen to now. Yeah, we were, actually, we were actually really lucky to catch Andrew Joel. It was when he was doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, yes. so it's a, it's a slightly older um, interview. So bear that yeah. in mind as you listen. That time has passed. Yeah. So here we go, listeners. We're taking you back in time now. To the merry month of August in 2019. Okay, welcome Andrew Doyle. So our first question is, what does satire mean to you? For me, the dif- the difference between satire and, and, and just being a comedian, I think, is, is explicitly the idea that you want something to get better. I think you mm. want societally or politically or whatever to improve and and you have this view that it can improve through uh through ridicule mockery irony exaggeration all of those, those kinds of techniques um that satirists use the, the the example i often quote because i really like it is that wh Auden's uh, distinction between satire and comedy because uh, he said that satire is angry and optimistic because it thinks that bad things that it has a go at can be changed and whereas comedy is good tempered and pessimistic because it thinks that basically we might want to be able to change everything but we can't so we just have to make the best of it i think that's a really good way to distinguish between the two so for me i mean i'm a comedian and a satirist so those two things to me are overlapping but different so i can write comedy that isn't satirical as i have done many times but i think with with titania in particular i'm very much um approaching it from a satirical uh, way when you're when you're being titania that's a satirical persona making satirical points Funnily enough, in our first episode of the podcast, we talked about one of your other creations, Jonathan Pye. And Jonathan Pye is a bit different, isn't he? Because he just gets angry about things that are actually happening. That's not quite satire in the same way, is it? 
No, no, that's no, that's exactly right. It, it's not it's not um, satirical just to shout insults at Tories. You know, that's not satirical. I, I think the the thing is, you no, know, we worked together for three years on that, and it, when it was satirically at its best, were, was examples, for instance, like the the video on the gender pay gap when you had um, Jonathan Pye interviewing a feminist and expecting a certain reaction and having his narrative completely thrown. So this was then a satire on on, on narrative, right? Yeah. Or you have the, the, the there's a satirical element all in the idea of the, the, the distance between the way that newsreaders behave on screen and what they're really thinking off screen. So that, that's always got a satirical. I think when it's at its weakest is when it is just reiterating an opinion in an angry way because that's not satirical. So let's talk now a little bit about Titania McGrath. Who we were just really interested to ask you about how that character evolved, why you chose the character you did, and whether or not being outed changed the reception of that character in any way or if any of that was surprising. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing has been surprising, really. Um, mm. I, I mean, I'm not very good at anticipating people's responses, so I don't know. I, 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 I sort of, well, for one thing, I didn't want to be outed. I was, I was kind of, I was enjoying the anonymity, but also it meant that people were reading it. Obviously, everyone knew it was, or most people knew it was um, a conceit, a character, but not knowing who is behind it does, I think, change the interpretation a bit. And, and so there was a certain, fr- a, a certain freedom for that. I had absolutely no intention of being outed. But what happened in the end was um, a journalist called Rosamond Irwin at the Sunday Times wrote a pretty impressive investigative piece where she'd read a lot of my political articles, my sort of polemical articles, and made some kind of connections between that and elements of the book, even down to sort of quotations I'd chosen, and said that it's probably me. And I thought that was really impressive, actually. Yeah. And then there was a website called Chortle that found sort of the smoking gun. and so then from that point on, I felt, well, I may as well just, you know, go on the TV and radio and talk about it openly. And I didn't want to, but I did. And that coincided with the week that the book was being released. So actually it did help in the end because it became a kind of story. But the ludicrous element of that is, is the response to that from so many, so many of her critics has been the idea that a male writing for a female voice is, is kind of, I mean, it's, it's been uh, compared to blackface. And it's, it's as though these people have never heard of the concept of an author writing a script before. They've never heard of someone inventing a character that is isn't exactly identical to them. And I suppose that comes out of the fact that they don't like the politics of it and they're looking for ways to attack it. That, that can be my only conclusion, because otherwise, how can... And they're smart people, but they're coming out with these, these, these genuinely stupid things. The only way that people say stupid things when they're not stupid is if they're, they're so blinded by an ideology, be that religion or politics. That's the way I, I see it. Yeah, it seems to me that responses to Titania um, fall into two quite polarised camps. And the first is people who respond to her as if she's real and critique her in actually often quite sexist ways and correct her. And the other is the response which which objects to that persona being female and to the problem of a, of a male creating a female persona. Can you say a little bit more about why, why she is female? Why is it Titania McGrath and not Tim? Because I think part of the uh, major problem that I see with the kind of um, mod- modern identity politics as it, as it manifests on the left, as opposed to the right, I mean, the, the, the identity politics on the right is that sort of racist, xenophobic thing, which we, we you know, goes without saying is, is ghastly. And the, the thing about the, I was more interested in satirizing the leftist form of identity politics because it believes itself to be virtuous when it's actually incredibly damaging. And that to me is, is a more interesting satirical target. And I think part of that is fourth wave feminism which to me is a very anti-feminist movement. Uh, And that, again, is the the hypocrisy of that I wanted to be able to talk about. 
You know, you have um, a victim-centered brand of feminism in- encourages young girls to, to, to understand that they will always be victims, that they will always be attacked, they'll be paid less for the same work, which hasn't happened for 50 years, but we're still telling girls that it will. With all of this sort of stuff um, that is actually underpinned by a kind of misogyny, a kind of view of women of being weaker, of needing these extra protections, of not being as robust as men. And that to me is the opposite of what feminism means. Feminism to me is about empowerment and about equality. And fourth wave feminism is about disempowerment and is and inequality. And so for me, um, I wanted to be able to include that in my satirical target. And I don't see how I could have done it as effectively if she was male. Right, so there's a very particular strand of feminism that you were interested in critiquing via Titania, as well as all the other aspects of so-called woke politics that you were keen to critique. Well, ultimately, I'm interested in deflating pretension. And, I, and that's the same for my comedies. Well, I, you know, I think anyone who's been who has ideas about themselves that are just absurd, it, it, it's always good to go after those people. And I think the um, there can be nothing more pretentious than a extremely privileged individuals suggesting that they are oppressed. There's nothing more pretentious than that. This is literally the meaning of pretension. They are they are pretending to be something they are not. And it's and it's funny. That's always really funny. And what you'll find is a lot of the very prominent fourth wave feminists who write for the Guardian and publications like that and the New Statesman are from these extremely privileged, privately educated backgrounds who bang on and on about how oppressed they are. And that to me is hilarious and and also slightly damaging. You know, because I mean, in all I think what I have, in terms of my comedic and satirical targets, what they have in common is I go after the powerful. I go after people in power. And that's a choice I'm not. Suggesting that comedians have to do that. I'm suggesting that's a choice that I, I'm just saying that's a choice that I've always made. It's more interesting to me. The thing about the woke movement is it's extremely powerful. Even though they're a, a huge minority, the, the, the degree of power that they have now in society is hugely disproportionate. And it's difficult to address because they believe themselves to be the underdogs. So how do you fight that? Every day we see this. We see the level of power that people can deny again and again, but it's true. We've just had the Advertising Standards Agency banning uh, an advert for cheese um, because it um, endorsed a certain gender stereotype. Well, that is an implicit, no, explicit endorsement of, of this woke idea about power structures and the influence of the mass media, all of which has actually been debunked over many decades of research. But it's now, it's now just taken as a given. This, they've taken this faith-based position that the woke the woke people have and they've applied it as policy so this stuff is extremely dangerous because it has so much power and clout and therefore that's why i'm punching up at these people of course the 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 misinterpretation of that is you're just having a go at minority groups so it sounds to me like on the one hand you're critiquing a kind of feminism that reads women as still structurally oppressed by a patriarchal society that some might describe as radical feminism. But then actually Titania McGrath is not necessarily that kind of feminist. She is somebody, it seems to me, who's interested in women as an identity much more. Yeah, it's 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 a mass of contradictions. That's what's so fun about playing her. You can, you can poke fun at all sorts of things and she can even hugely contradict herself within the same paragraph. And I really like that. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right about the. Yeah, the the, the argument that I have individually against fourth wave feminism is it is to do with the illusion of of, of structural oppression, which I do consider uh, largely an illusion. And that is not to say that I think sexism doesn't exist or that women in certain circumstances are um, discriminated against because of their gender. That isn't what I'm saying. What I'm what I'm talking about is this uh, exaggeration and this this sense in which there is well, there's a misuse of the word oppression. I suppose is what I mean. No one is being asked for their papers. No one is being asked to. No one is being uh, said you, you're going to go and work for two pounds while the men do the same job and, and they get ten and that's what I mean 
Does that is that sort of clear? I'm not talking about sexism. It's a really interesting point there about punching up and kicking down. Because I guess when your target is, as you described there, this group of relatively privileged people who are able to mobilise the oppression of others to kind of say what they like and critique what they like, it, because their own victimhood, as you've described, is so tacitly built into their their identity and the pose that they're making on social media, it can look very easy like you're kicking down. Uh, particularly now that you've been outed as Andrew Doyle. I mean, is that is that a factor? Is that something you've had to contend with? Worse than that it's not even as cynical as you suggest I mean I think a lot of this is as I said before I think it's well intentioned I think most of the fourth wave feminists I'm arguing against are not misogynist they've just bought into a misogynist ideology similarly um, I don't think that the the people who push the idea of cultural appropriation are doing so from anything other than good intentions Mm -hmm. Uh, but what what they are doing is is dividing up society and and, uh, rehabilitating a new kind of racism which this is this is what I find really disturbing about the whole thing they're unpicking all of the work of the civil rights activists of the 60s and the 70s they're undoing all of the work of Martin Luther King who talks about the importance of content of character not color of skin and they're doing all this from a position of virtue and and I don't think it's cynical and I don't think it's malevolent I think it's misguided and I think it's dangerous and I think it also feeds the far right it gives them everything they need it gives them all the oxygen they need to thrive and I'm not saying that they're responsible for the rise of the far right but they are enabling the conditions within which they can thrive there's some interesting questions here about satire and freedom of speech and the use of personas yours obviously being titania mcgrath how does that persona connect with with your position and perhaps relative privilege in the world well i mean i have got uh, i you know i won't say too much but i have got you know a couple of other personas out there that are, i'm not out as i think it's, it's interesting to me to inhabit other characters and i think it's the best way sometimes to help people to see the way that they are seen by others even if you hate titania and even if you hate what she stands for part of that hatred might be that you detect a similarity with yourself and and you don't like seeing it mocked in that sense i think it's quite a useful thing it's interesting to think about that isn't it that possibility of people looking at titania mcgrath recognizing themselves and doing something differently as a result which i guess is kind of the ultimate goal for any satirist isn't it and it probably isn't going to happen uh, <laughs> I, I think the woke movement are too cult-like too too sort of immersed in this sort of it's like trying to explain to a religious zealot that their god isn't real you know i think i think things are harder than that but what i think it can do is because the woke movement tend to be such bullies and tend to be so vicious and, and go after people's careers and try to bring people down and and that makes people nervous about expressing misgivings about their views so i think what it can do is that if you mock them if you show that it's okay to mock them it does give people kind of permission to do so and i've i've, I've had that feedback quite a lot which has been quite nice to hear is that people have said to me you know from what you've done it's actually made me okay I, i'll retweet this stuff now or I'll, I'll i won't be afraid to say what I think and and that is a real uh, compliment I really I'm I'm really pleased with that but I'm not delusional enough to think that you know some woke person's going to read this and think oh no that's what I'm like I better change my way that's not going to happen okay so all satirists want to hold up a mirror and change people's behavior and change their hearts and minds if in theory you were able to to do that to affect that change to inspire that reflection on the part of the young woke identitarians or the readers of the daily mail which would you who do you, whose minds do you want to change both i think you know i mean most of my stand-up um, and certainly most of uh, the work i did with jonathan pye has been mocking the right and most of the work i've done with Titania has been mocking the left but then you you picked up as well on the people who take it seriously and there is still an awful mm. lot there's rarely a yeah. post without some people taking it seriously and the people who take it seriously are the right wingers are the, usually the trump supporters so so i end up being able to mock them through Titania as well which is lovely so so it's it's about extremes, really. 
I do think, however, when you talk about the Daily Mail, for instance, it is, um, it's really simplistic and, and a little stupid to, to refer to Daily Mail readers as fascist or to think that the Daily Mail is a fascist crowd. Well, mm. if nothing else, it's historically illiterate. You know, when people call me right wing or conservative or whatever, I mean, it's not accurate, but I don't take it to heart because I don't consider those things to be essentially bad things. And I think if I, if I were those things, that would be fine. I'd, I'd, just, I'd just own the label. I don't have a problem with it. But yeah, certainly I want to, you know, I, I'll mock anything. Anything that I think, think is pretentious or I think is, is, is misleading or, or is worthy of mockery. And that goes for the right wing press as much as the left wing press. And I've certainly done enough of both, you know. Has anyone ever majorly endorsed an opinion that Titania has shared, not realising that it's satire? Has Titania got her own fans? Oh, yeah, but they, they soon realise because everyone piles on and says this isn't right. real. Um, right. And I wish they didn't do that. So much more fun to draw it out. I mean, I've been, you know, she's been retweeted by people who are angry about what she said and some quite prominent people, which is great. And then, you know, it's that thing of people keep saying to me, I mean, the criticism I often get is that there's no one who's really liked Tanya, that what I'm doing really is a kind of straw man. I'm trying to knock over a tacker target that isn't really there. But of course, if that were the case, then it wouldn't be the case that so many people continually mistake her for real life. You'll notice in the book, I've made a very um, conscious decision to quote genuine activists throughout mm. so that you can see that what Tanya is saying, although it is an absurdist um, exaggeration, or it's certainly hyperbolic, not a million miles away from what people are saying. When, when um, Laurie Penny says that you, you, know, you shouldn't necessarily be, be free to say what you want in the privacy of your own house, that's not uh, 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 that different from anything Tanya would say. And so you can see why people think think it's real. Um, and that, that's disturbing to me, the fact that people don't immediately recognise it as a, a character. So it actually confirms to me the necessity to do it. Yeah, what you're saying there about jokes and people getting them and not getting them ties in really nicely, actually, to a question that I wanted to ask in relation to yours or slash Titania's book, Woke where Titania is talking about jokes and comedy and one of the jokes that she engages with and critiques is is particularly interesting to us because we talked about this in our first season so I'll just read that joke and Titania's commentary on it if that's okay and then just ask you to talk us through how the satire is working there and what exactly is being critiqued. So she's talking about jokes and making the argument that comedy needs to be purged of jokes that reinforce bigotry. Uh, and after giving a couple of other examples, there is the, the in inverted commas, joke made by Frankie Boyle. I have a theory, Boyle said in his joke, that Jordan married a cage fighter because she needed someone strong enough to stop Harvey from fucking her, Harvey being her son. And Titania glosses this by saying, Frankie Boyle making the misogynistic assumption that a woman would be incapable of fending off her son without the help of her husband. Is the joke there on people who objected to Frankie Boyle's joke, or is the joke on her for objecting to it for the wrong reasons? I mean, what, what's your take on what Frankie Boyle said there? My, um, personally, um, I, I don't, I'm always supportive of, of, of comedians when they want to make jokes, even if those jokes don't necessarily land, or even if they cause offence. I think Frankie Boyle's a very funny comedian. Um, so I, and there's some Something about the joke he told. I understand why people would be upset by that joke, and I understand uh, why, in particular, the, the people who it's talking about would be upset. But I still think he has a right to to say it. I can't even remember what my initial reaction to the joke was when I heard it. But I do, you know, I do laugh at inappropriate things. There's something about that kind of I can't believe you just said that that mm. does generate this kind of involuntary because it sort of reminds us why we don't say these things. I, you know, I, I think that's 
that's kind of interesting. And also, here's, here's my view on this. If you're, if anyone is going to determine what, what jokes are and are not acceptable, it has to be a matter for the individual conscience of the individual comedian. There are jokes that I wouldn't say, and there are jokes that I wouldn't, th- I don't think I could get away with doing, and so therefore I don't do it. Not because I fear offending people, because I don't think I could make them funny and I don't think it could be successful. He's obviously made a judgment that he can joke about that uh, and it'll work. So that that's down to him, you know? That's, that's yeah. something that has to be down to every individual comment. Um, in terms of the Titania satire there, there were a few jokes before that one, which I... Which yes. Was, so things like where she where she misreads the joke. Yeah. So what was the one about, for instance, Tim Vine? Yeah, it's not Tim Vine. Uh, there are two jokes that precede this one, though, yeah. The first is Frank Skinner saying, when my wife and I argue, we're like, abandon a concert we start out with some new stuff and then we roll out our greatest hits she says that is legitimizing domestic violence that's right yeah yes that's right yeah yeah the reason um, i mentioned that context is because she lists some jokes which are clearly jokes she chooses to interpret them literally and then then you have a joke which is actually potentially offensive like the, the other jokes are not offensive and then you take a joke that is actually potentially offensive and she misunderstands the joke and still gets it wrong yeah 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 so it's, it, it's, it's more about that kind of woke mindset's inability to at all engage with what comedy is and to just see comedy as a literal statement of the truth and and that's something which you which we see pretty much all the time every every day i mean we even saw it today so aaron banks did a tweet about uh greta thunberg's trip yacht trip yes. to america and he said oh there might be a free oh i hope there isn't a freak accident or some and it was crass and, and it wasn't funny and all the rest of it and a lot of the people are rightly annoyed because it's tweeted directly at a 16 year old girl that does seem to me something that was well, certainly not something i would do but most of the criticism seemed to be aaron banks wants this girl to die Aaron Banks has just called for the death of this girl. Well, I think we can all agree he hasn't done that. You know, whatever we think about him and whatever, why can't we just be honest and say, we felt that joke was unfunny and inappropriate. Is it because that weakens us? Is it because it makes us feel like Puritans? So so we have to lie and say, he's calling for the death of a girl, even though we know he's not. So I, I think what I'm saying about the, the, the woke people is, is that what willful or otherwise, is an inability to understand what comedy is and to understand what jokes are. That's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about in that in that section. Tanya gets it so hopelessly wrong that it, when she actually comes across something that she could legitimately say crosses a line, she she only thinks it crosses a line because it because of another because she thinks it's anti-feminist and she misses the whole ableist element of it. Well, so it's about nuance, isn't it? As well as perhaps about mourning the death of comedy that there is an overuse of the word literally, whereby we see a lot of insistence that people are literally saying this when they're actually definitely literally not or that things are literally violence for example that that's what's happening a lot is this literal minded lack of nuance um, and that's why Titania is so blunt because she doesn't have room for nuance because the problem is with with a lot of woke people, if, the reason why they refuse to debate a lot of the time is because I think they know that if they were to debate, their, their arguments would fall apart. They'd have to start acknowledging that there are shades of grey and that, that doesn't work with a cult. You, you know, and, and you can't say your deity sort of exists. It either does or it doesn't. It, it is built on faith, largely. You know, this, the faith in these power structures and the faith in this, uh, this potential utopian future that we can all achieve if only we control the way that people speak and the language they're allowed to use. And it will fall apart when it comes under any kind of scrutiny. I think the last thing we want to talk about just before we let you go is that in our last episode, we actually interviewed the person who manages the account at DM Reporter, which um, tweets content from the Daily Mail and tries to foreground how, how funny and strange some of that stuff is. 
Um, but during the interview, we were talking about managing different types of persona and how he's managed his persona. And we ended up talking briefly about Titania McGrath. And during that conversation, DM reporter said that he didn't believe that you could still call yourself a satirist now that Titania McGrath has appeared in the pages of the Daily Mail. Yeah, it, it wasn't the Daily Mail, it was the Mail on Sunday. Yeah, but that attitude that you've just described is exactly the kind of thing I'm satirizing. You know, if, if someone thinks that you cease being a satirist on the basis of the publication you write for, that is quite funny. That's quite a funny thing to say because it's quite stupid. And I think the the content of the satire is still very obviously satirical. I, I, I don't play these tribalistic games. A lot of the satire, a lot of the point of Titania is, is, the, is to transcend this stupid political tribalism that we've got. Kind of division that comes about when people like Owen Jones say anyone who writes for the Sun or the Mail is is, is is helping fascism or is supporting the alt-right. I'm just not going to play those games. I'm not going to do it. The, 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 the Mail is a, a national newspaper, which is read by a lot of decent people. There are probably some awful people that read it, but for the most part, the people who read it are not awful people. And the idea that they should be, that they shouldn't be uh, reading satirical pieces is, is, is abs- utterly absurd. Is it a concern for you, though, that... As much as we might want to avoid reductive generalizations and stereotypes about readers of any particular paper, that you might be confirming certain beliefs that male readers have about the young, the woke, the left, that you might be entrenching those beliefs and thus making those readers less likely to be open to hearing those kinds of arguments. I'm attacking a very specific type of person. I mean, that would be a misreading of what I'm doing. So I'm, so I'm not really concerned if people misread what I do. You can't be. I think as a, as a satirist or a writer, you can't be. People have always misinterpreted satire. That's, that's all part of its effect, isn't it? I, I can't be in the business of getting worried about that and then trying to anticipate that misinterpretation and changing my material accordingly. That's, that's not how any of us can work, I don't think. There are a lot of assumptions made about, about these publications and about what they stand for. And, and they are reductive and they are simplistic. I'm not going to do this guilt by association rubbish. I think the heart of the problems we're say, experiencing at the moment societally are that people just aren't talking to each other anymore. And what happens is they just end up mischaracterizing their political opponent and they end up arguing against someone who doesn't really exist, just this sort of figment on the imagination, you know, this kind of, this just chimera they've created in their minds. And yeah, so I will, by all means, and I do it again. I don't have an issue with, um, with writing a satirical piece for the Mail on Sunday. A lot of decent people write for it. We're going to have to wrap up there, but thanks ever so much for talking to us, Andrew. Thank you. No, thanks for talking to me. I, pre- I appreciate being able to talk, talk about things at length, you know? And I like to be challenged as well. Well, here we are back in November 2019. <laughs> and that was interesting, wasn't it? And and definitely, I think we were all challenged in that interview. We were. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was re- really interesting talking to Andrew. And I am utterly convinced that Andrew Doyle is a satirist. Yes. And that he is doing satire. He's got a clear target. He's got a clear rationale. And I thought he did a good job of sketching the intervention he's trying to make. And convinced me that satire is actually possibly one of the only viable means to make that intervention. Yes. Um, I also thought it was interesting talking about nuance and talking about the the will to take things literally and I think that not only is that potentially a problem sometimes in general discourse it's specifically a problem for satire isn't it if we can't appreciate nuance and yeah well, one of the things that, that I found like, quite surprising and enlightening and I was really intrigued to, to hear more about was the specificity of the target because I've followed the Titania McGrath account for a couple of years now what I hadn't realised is who exactly the target was I thought there was a, a broader target which is you know this kind of call out culture this, this sense of piling on to critique mm. people's use of language and, and the kind of reduction of big issues down to easily marketable slogans, which then big business can come in and, and exploit, and you end up with things like that Pepsi Max advert, 
you know, where yeah. everyone's marching off listening to the latest mainstream hit to go and do a protest whilst drinking Pepsi. cans of Pepsi Coke and playing or any harpsichord. Other brand of, not any yeah. other brand. It has to be Pepsi yeah. specifically. Yeah. Um, so I thought, you know, that's a problem. I think that is a way in which real serious, long-standing systemic issues can be turned into marketable capitalist ventures. And it often runs the risk of undoing the work that the original cause was trying to do and leads to a really divisive, simplistic society. I think oftentimes it can be as bad to unthinkingly wade into a pylon because 1,300 people have said that something that someone else has said is problematic in some way without actually looking at the thing that the person has said and why they've said it in the context in which they've said it. I think that often the impulse to pile on and the things that come out of their pylons are oftentimes worse than the thing that's being said, which sometimes can be absolutely fine, just taken out of context. Yeah, and you should never wade into a pylon because it's a big metal structure in a field and you'll hurt your head. One of the things I found really useful and interesting in terms of satire and how satire works was looking in some detail at the mechanism and the work behind that joke in Andrew's book, Woke, where Titania takes exception to Frankie Boyle's, in inverted commas, joke about Jordan and her son. And actually kind of looking at the rationale behind that and the way that works and the way that works within the context of the page and the book, even if I don't agree with all of the decisions about who to target for satire thinking about how that bit of satire was intended to work and what point it was making Mm -hmm. I found that really useful to be able to talk to a practitioner about the tools Mm. of satire was really useful absolutely but then finding out that the target is as specific as Andrew's interpretation of fourth wave feminism yeah I mean that's what I mean when I say we don't have to agree with everything I don't agree with all of the the targets that Titania is is satirizing on the subject of feminism I would say I don't believe we've achieved equality yet and I I think there there is some way to go and I don't think it's always as simple as being able to to go through structures and mechanisms like I can't report a car salesman to the police if he doesn't take me seriously because I'm a woman when I'm trying to buy a car for example Mm -hmm. and that's a small thing Mm -hmm. but it still suggests we're not all the way there yet you know I'll still always be asked if I'm actually Mrs or Miss rather Mm. than Doctor you don't get that no no I don't no so, um, and, and I totally accept those are relatively small things because of where I live and who I am. But I think it's a bit soon to be saying that that the battle is over and therefore feminists risk kind of coming from a place of privilege. But then the point that he then makes about the way that oppression is represented and can be sort of caricatured. And, you know, he, ma- he makes the point, doesn't he? When he talks about the use of the word oppression, the misuse mm. of the word oppression. Again, I don't necessarily agree with the examples that he's saying, but I can see how that could get converted into a pink t-shirt that says girls rule and you put that in your kid and think everything's sorted which is actually the opposite of the thing that feminism is supposed to be doing Um, so there's maybe a hypocrisy there that's worth satirising well we're we're all hypocrites aren't we (laughs) yeah what do you think listeners yeah do you agree did you hear anything that that you disagreed with or that you want to talk about more if you do hit us up in our socials yeah as ever please do let us know if you've enjoyed the episode or even if you've just heard the episode and also please be aware that coming up later in this series we'll be having our first mailbag episode so if you'd like to respond to any of the things that we discuss in terms of satire or, or anything that comes up on the podcast and you'd like to have a say please do get in touch and that goes to all of our guests as well where should they do that so hit us up in socials at at satire no more on twitter you can find our website by googling the words satire deaths births legacies, legacies. or you can tweet us individually until the next time until the next what's time. happening next time well next time oh it's the so evening exciting drawing, drawing yeah. in snow is falling all yeah. around and it'll be time for the smith and war christmas, christmas episode special. which is going to be called it's a satirical life so you probably if you haven't seen the film it's a wonderful life 
put that on your to-do list between now and then so that you'll get the joke. So, sit up, shut up, and eat my satire. See you next time. See you time. next time.